Today's reading is from Isaiah, starting at chapter 10, and we'll be starting at verse 33 and going through to chapter 12, verse 6. See, the Lord, the Lord Almighty, will lop off the boughs with great power. The lofty trees will be felled, the tall ones will be brought low. He will cut down the forest thickets with an axe. Lebanon will fall before the mighty one. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice, he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt, and faithfulness the sash round his waist. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear, Their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den, and the young child will put his hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the the peoples, The nations will rally to him, and his resting place will be glorious. In that day, the Lord will reach out his hand a second time to reclaim the surviving remnant of his people from Assyria, from Lower Egypt, from Upper Egypt, from Cush, from Elam, from Babylonia, from Hamath, and from the islands of the Mediterranean. He will raise a banner for the nations and gather the exiles of Israel. He will assemble the scattered people of Judah from the four quarters of the earth. Ephraim's jealousy will vanish, and Judah's enemies will be destroyed. Ephraim will not be jealous of Judah, nor Judah hostile towards Ephraim. They will swoop down on the slopes of Philistia to the west. Together they will plunder the people to the east. They will subdue Edom and Moab, and the Ammonites will be subject to them. The Lord will dry up the gulf of the Egyptian sea, With a scorching wind, he will sweep his hand over the river Euphrates. He will break it up into seven streams so that anyone can cross over in sandals. There will be a highway for the remnants of his people that is left from Assyria, as there was for for Israel when they came up from Egypt. In that day, you will say, I will praise you, Lord. Although you were angry with me, your anger has turned away and you have comforted me. Surely God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. The Lord, the Lord himself, is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. In that day you will say, give praise to the Lord, proclaim his name, make known among the nations what he has done, and proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing to the Lord, for he has done glorious things. Let this be known to all the world. Shout aloud and sing for joy, people of Zion, for great is the Holy One of Israel among you. This is God's word. Morning, everyone. 
And um, let me have my welcome. If you're joining us today, we're, um, well, we're looking at four chapters of Isaiah. Um, but it's all right. We're focused mainly in, um, in chapter 12. Uh, this then our last look at Isaiah for the time being. Of course, we'll enter full, full Christmas season uh, from next week on Sunday mornings. But um, uh, we come to the end of a section. Chapter 13 is a new little block. So it's a good place to finish. Let me lead us in prayer as we begin. Our great God and Father, here again we're reminded that your desire for your people is that we sing and we shout and we cry with joy. You want us to be a people of deep satisfaction and joy. And Lord, for myself and for many in this room, we're not always that. We may feel far from that. But help us understand once again the truths of your word. So our response would be that of chapter 12, that we would sing. We ask it for our joy and for the honor of your name. Amen. Well then, one rule of thumb or one test of whether you've understood the Christian faith is, according to chapter 12, do you sing? Do you sing? Well, most of us sing at some point. Um, We sing in crowds relatively easily, uh, be it in church or at a sports fixture or a concert that we've paid money for and then we just do all the singing ourselves. Um, Most of us can can do that uh, in that sort of setting. Uh, On your own? Maybe. Not many of us in our offices would spontaneously burst into song. Um, You might just about get away with it at the end of December, but um, not many of us would do that. But on your own, you tend to sing on your own. I mean, within our own temperaments, some of us may grab the shampoo and pretend it's a microphone, others more gently sort of boom, 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 as we're going around the house. But do you sing? And not anything, of course. Do Do you sing of what the Lord has done? Because here in chapter 12 of Isaiah, actually, we're commanded to sing. So chapter 12, verse 5, sing to the Lord, for he has done glorious things. Uh, Verse 6, shout aloud and sing for joy. We can declare, verse 2, the Lord uh, is my strength and my defense, or song as the footnote will tell you. The Lord is my song. So actually, we're commanded to sing of what God has done. But of course, you have to be realistic. Often we don't. I'm not just talking about the one time we gather in the week and sing together, but just emotionally, in our lives, in our attitude, we don't. It may be that the troubles of life have mounted up And singing is just hard. It may be the pleasures of life have gathered around you and you just can't see how good God is. I mean, there are times in everyone's lives where it's hard to sing. Shared before, perhaps, uh, the end of 2013, many would know in our family we, we suffered a bereavement. For the first few months of 2014, there was no singing. I can remember vividly, it was around September time, emerging from the shower and, and Kerry, my wife, saying, 
you were singing. I haven't heard you singing in the shower for nine months. That was a big deal. Now, to be honest with you, the excitement of me singing wears off pretty quickly in anyone's earshot, but it hadn't happened for months, and now you sing again. Yeah, there are times when it's hard to sing, but the default setting of the Christian life should be that we sing. We take pleasure. We rejoice. Chapter 12 says, there is a day. Verse 1, in that day. Verse 4, in that day. We have the other references in chapter 11, in that day. There's a day when we really will sing with great passion and joy. I just want to show you in our text this morning, that day is, it is in the future. There is a day of enormous singing when we're united with the Lord in the new creation. But that day is also now. It's December 2019. It's this morning. Where are we? The 8th. It's now. When you come to Old Testament prophecy, it's often compared, and I'm not sure there are much better illustrations really, it's often compared to a mountain range. There's a prophecy made by Isaiah, and you, from where he's standing, you can see the fulfillment in the 8th century. But once you get to that fulfillment, once you've climbed to the top of that hill, you see, oh, there's another one beyond. And once you climb to that hill, you see there's another one beyond. And, and this text is a classic example. So were there to be three mountains um, on, a, on a picture, they'd look a little bit like that. There's Mr. Isaiah. Obviously, he needs to eat a bit more. But there he is uh, around about the year 735 BC. And what does he see? Well, he looks forward to well, the regional superpower that causes them so much stress, Assyria being broken initially in 701 BC. But in chapter 11, he's looking far beyond that. He's looking to a shoot being born. He's looking forward to the birth of the Messiah. But you get to the first century and you realize he's looking beyond that. He's looking in chapter 11 to when the Messiah returns with justice at the end of history. And in this text, that day, it's sort of all of them in part. So for us, it is we're celebrating, well, between those second and third peaks. We're in that day, but still we look forward to climbing the last one when Jesus returns. Now, if you are joining us just today uh, and you haven't been here for any of Isaiah, uh, well, the last few weeks we've been in the year 735 B.C., and uh, the situation, let's have the cats and the rats, just uh, uh, um, some of us have seen this plenty before. Uh, the situation, we're, we're, Isaiah is preaching to the poor old nation of Judah. It's a tiny, tiny nation. Uh, they're very worried about Assyria is the global superpower uh, or the regional superpower, and Assyria is threatening to invade. More pressing in 735 BC, these two neighboring countries, Aram and Ephraim, they're threatening to invade as well. So there's a threats on all sides. And um, uh, what the king, Ahaz, does, God says, just trust me, trust me, trust me. And king says, no, I can't trust you. So he makes a, strikes a deal with Assyria. Uh, Assyria goes and eats the two rats in, um, well, a few years within 735. But then a few years later, uh, Assyria will come and try and gobble up Judah as well. That's the setting. It's as simple as I can get it, I'm afraid. Uh, that's what it looks like. So these chapters, chapters 7 to 10, have been talking explicitly about this political situation in 735. And the fact that God is angry that no one has trusted him. 
So let me give you two minutes, a uh, whistle stop over uh, uh, the, the chapters that we haven't had read uh, into, um, from 9, 8 onwards. Just turn back to chapter 9 and verse 8. From chapter 9, verse 8 to the end of that chapter, the Lord is angry with Judah's neighbor, Ephraim, or Israel is another name. Angry for their failure to trust the Lord. And so you get the chorus line, uh, chapter 9, verse 12. His anger is not turned away. His hand is still upraised. Uh, verse 17, his anger is not turned away. His hand is still upraised. Chapter 9, verse 21, his anger is not turned away. His hand is still upraised. So God is going to judge Ephraim or Israel. But at the same time, God is angry with Judah, this little nation, because they've not trusted him either. And in their behavior, there is exploitation, there's corruption that is flowing from the fact that they're not trusting the Lord, they're trusting in their own resources. So chapter 10, verses 1 to 4, well, let me just read verses 3 and 4. Here's what's coming to Judah, the little nation, where Isaiah is preaching. Judah, what will you do on the day of reckoning when disaster comes from afar? To whom will you run for help? Where will you leave your riches? Nothing will remain but to cringe amongst the captives or fall amongst the slain. They've been oppressing, depriving the poor of justice. And still God says, my anger is not turned away. The Lord's hand is still upraised. So they're going to get judged by the Lord and, and Judah. And then the rest of chapter 10 is Assyria. You can see from the heading, the heading is a helpful one. The Lord permits Assyria to invade. She's so arrogant. And that's the whole of chapter 10. And so it just starts to emerge towards the end of chapter 10, encouragement again for Judah. Yeah, you'll, you'll be invaded. It takes place in the year 701 BC. But there's some within this tiny nation of Judah who keep on trusting the Lord. So verse 24 of chapter 10. Therefore, this is what the Lord, the Lord Almighty says, my people who live in Zion, don't be afraid of the Assyrians who beat you up with a rod, lift up a club against you as Egypt did. Here's the encouragement. Very soon my anger against you will end and my wrath will be directed to their destruction. That's chapter 7 to 10. The setting, 735 to about 701 BC. But then chapter 11 Isaiah looks beyond the 8th century BC and says there will be a Messiah or Savior who comes. And then chapter 12 tells us how to respond to him. So chapter 12 in Isaiah is the sort of summary and it's certainly the application of chapter 7 to 11. Here's what you do with the knowledge that a Messiah has come, you sing. There's the history. Let me try and make it uh, much simpler. Here are three reasons to sing that chapter 12 gives us. We'll need to turn back to uh, chapter 11 in particular to understand them, but here are the three reasons. Sing. Sing for the Lord's anger is turned away. Sing for the judge brings a perfect world. And then thirdly, sing for God himself dwells amongst you. Okay? Three reasons to sing. God's anger is turned away. The judge is bringing a perfect world. And God himself dwells amongst you. Three reasons to sing. Let's work through them. First said, uh, sing, for the Lord's anger is turned away. Chapter 12 and verse 1. 
In that day, you will say, I'll praise you, Lord. Although you were angry with me, your anger has turned away and you have comforted me. Surely God is my salvation. I will trust. I'll not be afraid. The Lord, the Lord himself is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. And with joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. So seeing because God's anger is turned away. Now, for Isaiah's original hearers, they're not told how that happens. They're not told why that happens in particular. It's clearly related to the Messiah that's coming in chapter 11. But, but for you and me, it's easier in one sense. We live this side of Jesus coming. We don't fear invasion from a big cat called Assyria, don't worry. But we don't fear invasion particularly. But everyone who has become a Christian is able to recognize I deserved God's anger against me. But the anger has turned away because of Jesus. It's always worth saying, of course, God's anger is not like ours, a fickle emotion. We're angry when inconvenienced, angry when someone drives badly in front of us, angry when someone is demanding of us. It's a fickle emotion. God's anger is a feature of his goodness. It's his opposition to all that is wrong. It's constant, it's judicial, it's measured, not reactive, over the top. His anger is uh, with our failure to trust in him, acknowledge him, rely upon him, which leads to our exploitation of others. But here we're told his anger has turned away. We put it in these terms. Uh, when I was a teenager, I think it was age 16, uh, my mother, my mother got me a job at uh, uh, the local uh, relatively prestigious hotel. It was Essex, but it was relatively prestigious, uh, uh, this hotel. And um, they did vast uh, weddings was their big shtick. I mean, could hold up to 500 for a wedding. Uh, so expensive, big deal. A lot of money being spent uh, on, on such things. And uh, mum got me a job there and great, it was reasonably enjoyable place to work. Uh, the owner was the same guy who'd owned it when she had worked there uh, 20 years earlier. And uh, they clearly got on well, and you know, she got me a job. And um, so, you know, I walked. And um, it was fairly daunting. You know, it was a busy place. It was 500 for a wedding. And anyway, I think it was the third week I was working there. I was put on the team that was serving top table. Um, and um, he's issued the, uh, the owner-manager, issued me some instructions, go and prepare bread rolls, bread rolls. Now, I, I clearly wasn't listening to his instructions properly, so I went and prepared baskets of bread rolls to pass around top table, etc. Apart from I got them from the wrong place, I got them from earlier in the week, the ones that were waiting to be turned into breadcrumbs. And so out I, you know, hey, would you like a bread roll? You know, would you like a bread roll? Bread roll. Um, delivering my bread rolls. But then people are trying to open them and they're losing fingernails. Or if they're super brave, they've gone for it and have lost a tooth. In, um, and it's quite obvious fairly quickly that this is not right. And I sort of vividly, it's one of those things, you know, quirky things a bit from my childhood, this manager's face. Red eyes, and he sort of grabbed my arm, dragged me out into the hallway, and said, Get out of my sight, go and wait in my office now. And it was that sort of, ooh, you know, this sort of 50 year old, very powerful sort of Greek man. And uh, I was 16, and sort of, and he made me sit in his office for two hours. 
two hours. I just sat there in his office for two hours. Eventually, you know, the, the, the main bit of the wedding has been done, etc., etc. He comes in and says, anyone, anyone else, I would have sacked instantly. You brought disgrace upon my hotel. But your mother was a wonderful employee. For her sake, you can return tomorrow. I have to be honest, as a 16-year-old who, I mean, 16, I don't know, is that peak lack of respect for your parents? I don't know. Um, but uh, age 16, I remember going home. It's humiliating. Yes, I was told I should have got the sack, but because of you, um, I'm, uh, I'm allowed to return. Now, look, there are all sorts of things that are flawed in telling you that as a story. The Christian is one who knows that they deserve nothing but God's anger. But because of Jesus, they can return to him. Now, there are all sorts of flaws in that as a story. God's anger is measured and judicial and perfect. It doesn't fly off the handle um, like my big Greek Cypriot boss uh, used to do. And, of course, it's not just that Jesus lived a perfect life. He dies for us as well. But God's anger passes away because of this Messiah who's lived perfectly. That's how we can remain in God's presence. That's how we can return to him. Here in Isaiah chapter 12, God's anger is turned away because of Jesus. And it's striking, isn't it? The only place to find comfort from God's anger is by fleeing back to him. Your anger has turned away and you've comforted me. God is my salvation. I'll trust and not be afraid. See, here's what we're meant to do, verse three. You and I are meant to, with joy, draw water from the wells of salvation. Now, this is dwelling upon this in the latter half of the week. A couple of questions, sort of, I can't quite get them right in my head. But the first is, what are the wells? What are the wells of salvation? Well, I think in, in this passage here, it is God. Or, or as a minimum, he provides them. So uh, verse 2, God is my salvation. Verse 2, end of, God is, has become my salvation. And verse 3, I go to the wells of salvation. So it's him. I go to him, or at least what he provides. The other question, maybe I'm pushing it too far, I couldn't quite work out, why verse 3 are these wells plural? If salvation is of the Lord, it comes from him, what are the wells? I mean, surely Jesus is the well. There's only one well. There's only one place you go for salvation. There's only one route of salvation, that's through Jesus. So why wells plural? I don't have to admit, I don't know, I'm not certain. But I think perhaps the point is, wherever you are in life, God provides you with a well. So the day you become a Christian, day one, you go to the well of salvation and say, I trust that Jesus has lived a perfect life. So even though you're angry with me, God, your anger has fallen upon Jesus. His perfections come to me. And I draw joy, joy from that on day one of becoming a Christian. And year 10 of being a Christian, you know you've stumbled into a 
foolish and destructive pattern of immorality, but you say, oh, it's, day, it's year 10, but I go back and I find another well of salvation. It's the same Jesus, but at this point in my life, day one I drew and day 10 I drew. And, and 20 years after becoming a Christian, you're just going through the motions and you barely, you know, you just plod through life and you're not singing because you're just distracted by other stuff. And then, you know, I need to go back to the well of salvation. And there's another well in front of me here. And, of course, there's a sense in which each and every day, and whenever you and I gather, this morning, this service, this meeting, we draw down from the well of salvation. There's another one. These wells never run dry. And I don't want to be trite or simplistic. But if the pleasures of life have just so encroached upon you that you don't sing, you don't rejoice, you've just got to go back to the well. Go back to Jesus and say that there's another well in front of me on 8th of December 2019. I go back and remember that the Lord's anger has turned away from me. And again, if the struggles of life have just killed off all joy, once again, we draw back. We draw, we draw, we draw upon the well of salvation. Sing. Sing for God's anger has turned away. Let's go a bit faster. Sing. Secondly then, sing for the judge is bringing a perfect world. Chapter 12, verses 4 and 5. In that day you will say, and there's a bit of a shift here, the, the you's now are plural. Uh, chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, you singular, now they're plurals. Chapter 12, verse 4, in that day you, you lot, you will say, give praise to the Lord, proclaim his name, make known among the nations what he has done, and proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing to the Lord, for he has done glorious things. Let this be known to all the world. And you think, great, some and what are the particular, what are the glorious things that make us sing? Well, there's multiple, but I guess in context, the main thing is chapter 11. Sing because of the work of the Messiah. Chapter 11, for Isaiah's first audience, this is a stunning word of assurance. The troops are assembled upon their border. They're being invaded. And into that, God says, but look, one is coming that will sort all of this out. Chapter 11. We had read just the, at the end of chapter 10. Look, you, you think Assyria is so impressive. Assyria is this vast forest. Assyria intimidates you, but uh, chapter 10, verse 33. See the Lord, the Lord Almighty, who will lop off the boughs with great power. The lofty trees of Assyria will be felled. The tall ones will be brought low. He'll cut down the forest thickets with an axe. Lebanon will fall from the mighty one, and a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. So everything you're scared of, everything that's intimidated will be flattened. And then from nowhere, this tiny shoot will grow up. From the stump of Jesse. Jesse, of course, in the Old Testament, is father of King David. The greatest, in many ways, king in the Old Testament. The one whose descendant is Jesus. 
But I think the point here is he goes back to Jesse. He doesn't say David. He says, we're going back to the stump of Jesse. And do you remember Jesse's son when he first came? Little David, who was zealous for the Lord, who was a teenager, looked at Goliath mocking God's name and said, we can't have that, I'll take him on. But he's a giant. Yeah, I've got a stone and five stones and a sling. He was zealous. I think that's the point. One will come who is zealous for the Lord. What is this shoot, this Messiah-like, verse 2? Well, he's got the sevenfold spirit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. What does that look like? Well, you've got three pairs. The spirit of wisdom and of understanding. Those are judicial attributes. Solomon, when he becomes king, we're told he has these two, wisdom and understanding. 1 Kings 3, this is how you make good decisions. He's got the spirit of counsel and of might is the second pairing. That just has a sense of military strategy. I, he always knows the right thing to do, always knows the right course of action. What do we do in this situation? I don't know. He always knows. The spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. Knowledge, that's just truth applied to everyday life. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And this one, he delights in the fear of the Lord. The, the word delight, it's a, it's a scented word. It's a, oh, that smells good. Um, he delights in it. That's what he's like. What does he do? Verse 3, he'll not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he'll judge the needy. You see how perfect that is, verse 3. You and I are limited. Did you see what happened? No. What's the CCTV footage show? I don't know. It's a bit blurred. This is perfect. Did you watch um, uh, BBC drama, The Capture? It was on earlier in, early in the autumn. This, well, it's obviously fictional, but the, um, it, was, it was very clever. Uh, a security service was tapping into lots of CCTV footage and um, editing it. To, so particularly for potential terror subjects. They were made out to be doing crimes that they actually hadn't done. Um, sort of preemptive justice, as it were. Uh, all immoral, etc. But of course, you have juries watching the footage of the CCTV and saying, well, there it is. Obviously, that man is guilty when it never happened. I mean, we're limited by what we see with our eyes and worries. He's not. Just gets everything right. Never wrong in his judgments. And therefore, in verses 6 to 9, you see the world that he produces. And it's a wonderful, poetic vision of the future. And this is the future, sorry, I should have said verse 4, with righteousness he'll judge the needy, justice he'll give decisions for the poor of the earth. He'll strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, with the breath of his lips he'll slay the wicked. In the New Testament, Paul quotes that in 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 8 and says that's the end of the world. So this judgment and this verses 6 to 9, this is the new creation being spoken of. What does it look like? Well, verse 6, the the wolf will live with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the goats, the calf and the lion and the yearling together, the little child will lead them. No, 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 that's not right. Ask David Attenborough, that's not right. Um, What happens when a wolf lies down with a lamb? It eats it. It doesn't go, oh, you're nice, you know, know, I've never met anyone from your 
whatever, Wales before, whatever it is, um, uh, let's have a chat. Let's, let's, let, you know, let's, less of this enmity, less of this sort of just, I bite you, you run away. Let's chat and get to know. It doesn't happen in real life. What's the point here? It's the end of, I think, exploitation. I mean, he may just be talking in literal language, but I think given that Isaiah has lambasted the rich exploiting the poor, the larger nations invading the smaller He's saying it won't happen. Exploitation has ended. No longer can the strong feed off the weak with impunity. Verse 7, I think, is the end of fear. The cow will feed with the bear. The young will lie down together. The lion will eat straw like the ox. It's the end of fear. Daisy the cow is arranging playdates for her daughter with baby bear. It's the end of hostilities. Their young lie down together. They trust one another. Lions are becoming vegans. I, you don't fear them. You can wander up to a lion in the wild and not be scared. It's the end of fear. And I think verse 8 is the end of death. The infant will play near the cobra's den. The young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. All these echoes of Genesis uh, 3 are taking place. You don't fear anymore. You don't fear your children, and they won't die. Well, verse 9 summarizes it all. There's neither harm nor destruction, nothing to fear. And Isaiah says, this is what the judge brings when he returns. This is what the world will look like. So even though we're not there yet, sing. Again, I, I don't want to belittle what's going on in people's lives. But in pain, in brokenness, when you know this world is coming, you, you can sing. Not, you know, look, there are times in our lives where it's just too much. We just were overwhelmed by sorrows. But as we start to emerge, we think, I can sing because the perfect world is coming. In my disappointments, in my struggles, this is not how I want it to be, but it's not how it will be. I can sing, because I know what's coming. Sing. For the judge is bringing a perfect world. So sing, sing, for God's anger's turned away. Sing, for the judge is bringing a perfect world. Last briefly, sing, for God dwells amongst you. God himself dwells amongst you. Chapter 12, verse 6. Shout aloud and sing for joy, people of Zion, for great is the Holy One of Israel among you. He's among you. More detail on that in in chapter 11. There are two poems in chapter 11. Verses 1 to 9 is one about the Messiah. You get the the prose in verses 10 and 11, but then the the rest of it is a a song about the, the Messiah's people. Chapter 11, verse 10, Josh read earlier in our kids' slot. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him and his resting place will be glorious. When is that day? Well, Paul will quote this in Romans 15 and say it's today. That's now. That's this point in history. Today, God is gathering people together. We won't go through the details, but 
Uh, Isaiah uses language and geography familiar to his audience. But clearly, chapter 11, verse 12, this is bigger than just his audience because God will, this Messiah will, assemble the scattered people of Judah from the four quarters of the earth. This is the whole world being gathered together. Oh, look at the end of this section, verse 16 of chapter 11. He'll say, Assyria and Egypt, they won't trouble you anymore. We might say, nothing can stop it. Nothing can stop this plan of God. In the 8th century, neither Assyria nor Egypt. In the 21st century, nothing can stop this. Not, I don't know, the worst of Chinese authoritarianism or Russian electoral interference or... American fake news or British electoral deceit and chaos. Nothing can stop this. That's his point. God is gathering a people. He's doing that now. And chapter 12, verse 6, he's amongst you now. The Holy One of Israel is with you now. God dwells with his people now. Yes, this will be deeper truer, richer in the new creation. Yes, in the language of the Bible, we see him face to face with greater intimacy then. But he is with us now because of the work of this Messiah, this shoot coming up from the stump of Jesse. It's unstoppable. And so at the end of this section in chapter 12, Isaiah says, look, if you understand what God is doing, and I don't know if we've got the mountains, if, um, if you know where you are in history, the Messiah has come, the shoot has come up, and you know he will return with justice in the future, if you, if you know where you are in history, sing. Literally, it's not just a metaphor, literally, Sing. Sing out loud. Don't feel like it. Don't want to sing. Go back to the well. Go back to the well of salvation and remember that God's anger is turned away. Know that a perfect world is coming. Know that even if you feel alone, God is with his people now. Sing. Sing by telling others of what this root of Jesse Jesus has done. Sing. Lose your self-consciousness of what other people think of you. Just sing. Look at him, not yourself and not the people around you, and sing. For he is our strength and our song. Look at Jesus and sing. Let's pray together. Hey, great God and Father, you know better than any. Uh, The states that we're in this morning, where we stand before you, many of us don't feel like singing. Some of us are not persuaded that Jesus is our saviour, so we don't want to sing to him. Some of us are just crushed. 
And there's nothing in us that can rouse the effort, the energy to sing because we're just broken. But Father, for for many of us, yes, we have cares. Yes, we have troubles. But yes, we're distracted. And so for many of us, would we even this morning, even now, sing? Would we go to the well of salvation, the Lord Jesus Christ? Know that there is a deep well there for us even this morning. Remember that your anger has turned away from us to him and sing. Father, even for those of us walking the darkest of times at the moment, would you help us to look forward also and know that this is not the end. A better world is coming. And so even just listen as others around us sing and take pleasure in their singing. Father, for you are a great God who is greatly to be praised, who has done wonderful things through the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you help us please this morning, this week, to draw from the wells of salvation and sing. Amen.